0: All right, go ahead and grab your seat. Go ahead and grab your seat. There's a time of pastoral prayer now, and I thought with Christmas it's appropriate just to praise Him. Praise Him for what He's done, praise Him for who He is, for whatever. comes to your mind, it could be one word, as simple or as long as you want it to be, I'll start and then I'll open it up to y'all to pray and join in and then I'll close it out. Father, uh, you are worthy of our praise. There's so much that I know I take for granted of your goodness towards us, of your blessings, that your mercies are new every morning and that they never run out. It's something that's easy to take for granted. But Lord, I thank you and I praise you for your willingness to forgive. Father, we thank you that because you sent your son, we have hope. Because you sent your son, we have reason for joy. And because you sent your son, we have peace. That we know that whatever we might endure in this life, that we know it's temporary. We know whatever comes our way, that you are with us and in fact you will use it even for our good and there are times where we don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing what you're doing or allowing what you allow but rather than needing answer to those questions what we need is be redirected back to jesus and what he did that when we don't know why we are comforted by knowing who's over everything and so lord i pray that you would, in fact, comfort our hearts this morning with the hope that we have of Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, during Christmas at church, we are encouraged to stop, to pause for a moment, in the midst of our busy weeks and schedules and demands on our life, to reflect on what the meaning, what the purpose of Christmas really is. I mean, what is it really? all about? Why do we Christians celebrate Christmas the way we do by coming to church? Well, the last sermon in our series in Exodus this morning is going to cause us to kind of address that question, but it's not going to stop at Christmas. It's actually going to go deeper, further, get more to the root behind the question of what is the purpose of Christmas, because it's actually going to press us And cause us to reflect on what is the purpose and meaning of life. Not just what's the purpose of Christmas, but what's the purpose and meaning of life? What's the point? Why are we here? What are we really meant to be all about? What is the purpose which you and I were created? It's not a light and fluffy topic for us this Christmas morning. But how we answer those questions makes all the difference in the world. Whether you consciously ask those questions or not, for you to get up in the morning, go about your day, you are living life, making choices and prioritizing your day according to your answers or to your answer of what the meaning of life is. One pastor and author said about our text that we'll look at this morning uh, that short of the incarnation itself, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in all the Bible. The content given in these chapters gets picked up multiple times elsewhere in the Old Testament by prophets affirming its importance of what is given here in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And rather than stringing you along to find the answer to all of those questions given in our text, I'm going to give you the answer here at the start. I'm going to give you the answer and then we will try to unpack why that is the case. And in fact, the answer our text gives to all those questions about the meaning and the purpose of life can be given in just one word. One word. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to give the Sunday school answer of God, although that would be true. But the one word that our chapters of Exodus 33 and 34 give us of what the meaning of life is. you guess what it is? Glory. Glory is what the meaning of life is. Glory is what life is all about. Glory is why we are here. That's what everything about, all of life, is about glory, according to Exodus 33 and 34. So if you can or able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in this text for a while. It's a long text, so get loose. Don't lock those knees. Um, And... Yeah, endure. <laughs> we'll jump around a little bit. We won't read every verse, but I'll guide you. We'll start in verses 1 through 3 of 30, of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hiv. Hivotites and the Jebusites go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. Now, jump over to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that, I, that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, (coughs) I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first, Now we're right on the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Which, side note, interesting that the law doesn't change. God doesn't change his requirements. He doesn't lessen his standards according to their weaknesses. It's the exact same word. I won't address that in a sermon, which is why I'm speaking to it. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you notice God's not balanced? He does punish sin, but to the third and fourth generation, But his grace and abounding love is to a thousand generations. God is not balanced in who he is. He is gracious more than he is punishing, according to his revelation. Picking up now in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Uh, now, jump down to verse 29 of 30, chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that, his, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before God to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. <clears throat> Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word. That your spirit would move and transform our hearts on the spot because of the powerful message you have for us this morning. Help us to get caught up in the beauty and glory of who you are and give us the great blessing of actually being consumed with ourselves less. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're coming off the heels of the intense scene of chapter 32 with the golden calf you remember from last week, the Israelites' idolatry threatened to undo everything that had taken place in the 31 previous chapters of Exodus. God seemed determined to blot Israel out and to start over again with Moses. Almost like a sequel to Noah and the Flood, right? But Moses intercedes. Moses successfully intervenes and mediates on behalf of the Israelites. Moses does what God had raised him up to do from the very beginning. He does what God sent him down the mountain in Exodus 32 to do. So that rather than blot them out, we are told that God relents and graciously does not give them what they deserve. Which brings us to the beginning of chapter 33. They are not blotted out. But now what? What's to come of them now after this act that they did of the golden calf god relented from his anger in the moment but what now what will happen to the israelites will they be left to wander alone in the desert for the remainder of their life now because of what they've done or will they just pick back up where they left off before the golden calf and continue on their journey as usual with god's guiding presence as before or is it secret option number three It's secret option number three. God does not go back on giving, he does not take back the promise that he has to give them the land flowing with milk and honey. He still plans to give them that land. And he even still plans to make sure the land is ready for them, promising that he's going to wipe out any enemies who might be there now so that they don't have to worry as they enter into this promised land. There's only one thing that's changed in the plan. Only one thing, that's it. Everything else is the same. And the one thing that's changed is that God will send his angel and angel to guide them to prepare the land for them rather than who has been guiding them so far, which is the angel of the Lord. In other words, the thing that has changed is that God and his presence will not go with them anymore. And the reason that we're given in our text in verse 3 Is Because he says, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God is saying, not only will I relent from blotting you out from the book of life, but I will still give you what I promised to give you from the beginning, a home. A home that you've never known. I will give you the best land. I will give you the best and endless supply of resources. I will give you a place that is peaceful, absent of enemies or threats. But the only difference is, is I won't be going with you. Now, considering what they did last chapter, I think that seems like more than a fair offer for God to be presenting to them. If you consider what their life has been like, uh, it seems like more than they could have ever asked for, more than they've ever known in their life. Remember, they've always been foreigners. They've always been foreigners in the land that is not their home and the places they live. They've been slaves, surrounded by their enemies, and harshly treated by those enemies. And even after they were freed, uh, the only life they've known is in the desert, where there are scarce resources and constant threats on their life. And they're getting all of this promised land without having to do much work themselves. I mean, God is saying an angel will lead and guide them there. So they don't have to navigate it themselves. An angels is going to be the one who drives out their enemies so they don't have to fight themselves. The only slight difference in the plan is that God's presence won't go with them. And it's kind of what they've wanted in a way, if you remember. Remember in chapter 19 they said that they only want Moses to talk to them because they are so afraid of God. And what caused them to make the golden calf in chapter 32 in the first place is that they're trying to create a God in kind of their image, a God that's more manageable, more controllable. They seem to kind of want a God like a first, to act like a first responder. They come out of your station when things are bad, when we need you, but stay away when things are okay. And now they're being offered a place where they presumably won't even need a first responder kind of God. They are being offered peace, prosperity, and success in politics, in the military, and in their economy. The offer God gives confronts Israel. And it also confronts us with that question that we were asking at the beginning. What is life really all about? What is life all about? You know, if you listen listen to people talk, Or if you observe their life, uh, you can see kind of how they organize their life according to what they think life is about. If you reflect on your own life, think about where you spend your time and your effort and your resources, it kind of reveals to you what you believe in your heart of hearts that life is all about. There are lots of different answers to that question, right? I mean, some people say that life is about doing and pursuing whatever makes you happy. Life is about happiness, so do whatever you deem or think will make you happy in the moment. That is the end-all, be-all. So whatever you believe in this moment is going to make you the happiest, pursue that, no matter how it affects others in your life or around you. But others say, no, that's not the meaning of life. The meaning of life is family, right? Family is the meaning of life. That's what life is all about. As long as my family is healthy. As long as our family is together and getting along, then I'm okay. And then I'm at peace until we're not getting along, until someone's not healthy. Uh, Until other people say, kind of connected to family, that life is about raising your kids in such a way that they are better off and have a better life than what you've known. That that's what drives you. That's what drives everything you do, is trying to give your kids uh, a life that's better than the one you've known. But others say that what's really important is being a good person. That's really what life is all about. Just If you're a good person, if you kind of live with the golden rule, that you treat others with respect the way that you would want to be treated, that's really the key and the goal to life. I mean, what more could you ask for than that? (coughs) Well, others who are more adventurous say that life is about traveling and creating memories and experiencing. That's where you should spend your resources. That's where you should spend your time. That's where you should focus everything because it's, you can't hold on to the stuff you buy, but memories will last. Right? Adventure is what life is all about. And few people will say this, but if you look at their life, it does seem like there are a lot of people who think that life is about getting and collecting stuff. I mean this time of year, right? Like it's about collecting stuff, meaning having the dream house that you've always wanted and saved up for or the nice car or the up-to-date fashion, the new Apple product, whatever it is. That's really what life seems to be about. Although most people won't admit that, that's where their focus and time is online on Amazon. Um, but when you observe others, some people still think that life is about personal achievement it 's about what can I get out of myself in this life? Things like how far can I climb up that career ladder uh, and the accomplishments that come with my job, or what kind of physical challenge awaits me next that I can challenge myself and accomplish, or being recognized and affirmed for your personal giftings and unique strengths that you have in your life or in your occupation. But here's what it really boils down to. What do you think you would do? What do you think your answer would be if God offered you a blank check of sorts for your life? You have a blank check for what your life could be and look like. The only caveat is that you lose his favored presence forever. God offers you. You can make life what you want it to be. The only caveat to that signing of the check is that you lose his favored presence forever. Now, understand I'm using favored presence. God is omnipresent, right? Meaning he's everywhere. So I'm not saying that he's not with you in that sense. But he's, what it's saying is he's not with you in the personal, favored, intimate, relationally way that he's with his people. And in your heart of hearts, what do you think you would say to that offer? Is that tempting? It's tempting for me. Especially certain times in my life, if that offer was right in the right moment, when things are hard. Right in the right moment when things seem difficult and I don't know the way out. Right? If God offered me the check then. Sometimes it's easy to answer it while we're sitting in church, right? Right? We're inspired, we're singing, and we know that answer. But think about the times in your life that you've been overwhelmed or what could happen if God came with that blank check. Moses' response to that offer in our passage reveals why that offer really doesn't work. It's really empty in the ultimate end that it gives. It shows us us why getting all those things means absolutely nothing without having God's favored presence in our life. Moses basically responds to God, God's offer with saying, absolutely not. Tears up the check and says, there's no way I'm signing this. He says, I need to know that you will not only be with me, but that you will be with us, your people. If you are not, Moses says, if you are not coming with us, then don't send us. Don't even send an angel. He is in essence saying it would be far better for us to die here in the desert with your presence than it would be to get everything you have promised us without you. Which is similar to what Ecclesiastes says in the conclusion where it says all of life is vanity Uh, apart from God. And this is Moses' kind of version of what Jesus says later on when he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's what this text and the Bible teaches us about those things. That behind all those good things that we listed earlier, happiness, family, health, achievement, and adventure, behind all the beauties in life that draw our hearts out, Behind all the joys that cause us to swell with pleasure, behind all the love and affirmation that embraces you, behind all the hope and excitement that energizes you is one thing. Behind and underneath all those things is one thing. It's the eternal glory of God. What is underneath all of our dreams for this life is the eternal glory of God found in in His favored face, in His presence. What lies behind and underneath all your dreams, in other words, is God. What you're really longing for is Him. Listen to me. The reason that is true is because that is what you are made for. That's what you and I were created for. And we will not find lasting rest, lasting peace, lasting joy until we have that one thing the secret and the purpose of life is the glory of god in your life it's why the first catechism catechism question what is the chief end of man to glorify god and enjoy him forever how do you glorify god by enjoying him you enjoy him for who he is So you don't become a Christian, right, because you're better than somebody or wiser than anyone. You don't become a Christian because that's how you were raised or because it's so practical for your life. You don't become a Christian because it's the right thing to do. You don't even become a Christian because there's nothing else that works. And that's the only thing that can help you cope with the difficulties of life. You become a Christian because you are made to know and experience the glory of God through his favored presence. That's why you become a Christian. But here's the problem. For us, for Moses, and for the Israelites, they and we are a stiff-necked people, and our sin cannot be in the presence of a glorious God. It cannot be in God's glory. Moses asked God to show him his glory and, And God has an interesting response. He says, you cannot see my face. Moses asked to see God's glory. God says, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God is telling us that the fullness of his glory shines from his face, and nobody can see that and live. Therefore, God says he will proclaim his glory. He will speak his glory to Moses as his goodness passes him. And then he will cover his eyes. God is protecting Moses from his glory that will consume him. And he covers his eyes in a cave. There's so much here about what God reveals about his name that we can't cover. But just know that the fullness of his glory, according to what he proclaims to Moses, is seen both in his justice against sin and his grace and forgiveness towards sinners. But no one can see that fullness and live. That's what he's telling us. No one can see the fullness of that glory and live. So God gives Moses, Israel's mediator, his back. And he gives him his back as a confirmation for his promise to actually go with them. To not just send an angel, but that God's favored presence would go with Israel. And something's different about Moses when he comes down. From this mountain, when he comes down from seeing the glory of God's back, his face, we're told Moses' face is shining. But the Israelites aren't even allowed to look on God's glory in the face of Moses because of their sin. And so he wears a veil between him and them, between God's glory and his face and the Israelites. But we are made for the glory of God. And yet, the problem of our sins means we cannot see His glory and live. Even Moses can't see His glory and live. Even God's mediator here in Exodus can only see His back. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Moses, Moses is, as a mediator, uh, is a pointer to us. That His ministry and His mediation is a pointer. That it's temporary because it's veiled. It's temporary because it's limited. But what does it point us to? It points us to another mediator, doesn't it? It points us to the one who can and does give us full access to God's glorious presence. Because this mediator gets God's back as well. He gets God's back, but he's not, he's not shielded. God covers Moses to protect him. But this, no, this other mediator does not get protected. Rather, he's destroyed by the fullness of God's glory on the cross. The cross of Jesus is the only place that we get a picture of the fullness of God's glory on display. Because it's the only on the cross where God's just full punishment of sin and God's gracious, steadfast love is seen at the same time. It's only on the cross that we see the fullness of God's glory on display, that he is punishing sin in all its fullness. But we also see the depth of his steadfast love and graciousness Jesus is the one who always had his father's face, but on the cross he gets his back so that in Jesus' face now we get the fullness of his glory in our life. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what life is all about, about God's glory through the face of our mediator who gets God's back so that we never will so that we will always have his glory in our life. Now his presence, because of that, amidst sinners and stiff-necked people who are saved by Jesus, we are no longer at danger of being consumed because that's what happened to him on the cross. The passage we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 18 it says, And we, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord continually. Not a one-time event like God passes us by. Continually. That's a present active participle. Beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens? Are being transformed. When we get God's glory, it changes us. We're being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then just a few verses down from that. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? It tells us, In the face of Jesus Christ. You want the glory of God. You want the face of God. You need a mediator who gets his back so that you never will. And even when you're tempted to actually think that life can be found outside of his glory, even when you're tempted to trade his presence for that blank check that he's offered, you still won't get his back. You still can't lose his presence. That's the good news of the gospel. This is the powerful message for us this Christmas. Listen, deep down, we know that life is not really about getting stuff, don't we? Although it can be easy to forget, it can be tempting to pursue those things, Those things. we know that's what, that life is not about that deep down. We know that life is more than even the best things that we listed, that family and friends, health and happiness, because we've seen countless number of people who seem to have everything and yet, they tell us and they display the reality that it's not enough. And we see a ton of people who seem to have very little in their life, but it seems like they have everything. Because the difference is simply what our text teaches us the difference is the glory of God's favored presence in their life. Listen, Christians are no better than any other person. We can give the aura that we're better, that we got this figured out, that we're better than most people. But that's not true, right? We sin and we fail just like anyone else. There are plenty of non-Christians who seem to be better people, have better marriages, and live better lives than many, many Christians. So what makes us this different? What makes us distinct if that's true? It's not our health, wealth, or prosperity. It's not even our behavior. It is that we have God's glorious presence in our life and in our hearts. We have what everyone was made for. We have the meaning and the purpose of life in his glory. We have God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us distinct. That's what makes us different. We have God as our Father. We have and have experienced His grace and His forgiveness. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, I just invite you to see the glory of God right now in the face of Jesus. Look to and trust in the one who took the wrath of God's back for you so that now you can have His face, so that now you can experience the reality of what you were made for but if you're still not ready to do that if you're still not convinced or willing to do that this morning my prayer for you is actually that your dreams come true Let your dreams come true so you can see where life is really found. Only in the glory of God. And Christians who are here, my exhortation for you and for me this Christmas morning is very simple. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace amen